Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I usually talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today is the season two finale of Deviate, so things are going to be a little bit different. You know, way back in the first episode of this season, I talked with the comedian Ari Shafir, who's a frequent guest on this podcast. Uh, Sometimes on Ari's own podcast, it's just him talking without a guest, and that's what I'm going to do in this episode of Deviate. You know, Ari was talking someplace, and I'm pretty sure it was the Joe Rogan podcast, that he's thinking of writing a travel book. And that's something I would actually really enjoy reading, since of all the people I've known for something other than travel writing, Ari seems to understand travel really well. I know a lot of you who listen to this podcast found me through Ari, so you might shout at him on social media and let him know that you do want him to write that travel book, because I, among other people, would love to read it. Anyhow, back when I ended season one of this podcast, I took off for five months and traveled the world, but guess what? Nobody can do that right now, so instead of taking a five-month gap between season two and season three, it'll just be a one-week gap, so in a sense it won't even feel like one season has ended and another one has begun. But with the coronavirus changing the definition of normal right now, I wanted to kick off a new season that takes that definition of normal into account. I actually recorded quite a few season three episodes before this ever became a pandemic, but since my approach to travel was never pegged to hot new trends or destinations, none of these travel episodes that I recorded earlier feel outdated right now, apart, of course, from the fact that it'll be a while before any of us can travel. I'll talk about travel in this episode. I'll also talk a bit about what episodes I'll be covering in season three and recap some of the ground we covered in season two. I'm actually interested to hear from you about which episodes you enjoyed in season two and what you'd like to hear about in season three. And a little bit later in the episode, I'll talk more about that. And once again, I actually plan to mail postcards to people who send me feedback. You know, last season, I promised postcards from my travels across Asia And I'd reckon I mailed about 50 postcards from Sri Lanka, which is remarkably time-consuming. But it's interesting since it's a lot rarer to write and send postcards these days, and the whole ritual allowed me to see a whole new side of Sri Lanka. This year, of course, I'm at quarantine at home in Kansas, and the challenge lies less in finding time to write postcards than in finding postcards to write on. But I'll figure that out. Again, more on that later in the episode. I'll be speculating a little bit about the future of travel in this episode. I know I've done that already in recent episodes, but no doubt making sense of what post-pandemic travel will look like moving forward will continue to be a topic this podcast season. Some of the speculation will center on the travel industry, but I think that good old-fashioned travel values of the sort I've talked about since Vagabonding came out will be key to how to approach travel once it's possible to travel again. I'll also be talking quite a bit about quarantine life, though quarantine is something we're all experiencing right now, so I don't know that I have any huge revelations about what quarantine means right now, beyond the fact that travel skills can probably help you endure quarantine. Because this is a solo format, I might end up going on a few rants, or at least a few thought tangents that sound like rants compared to the way I usually talk on this podcast. Some of them will be about travel, but I suspect I'll also rant a little bit about the shortcomings of social media in times like this. And since I have an episode coming up about diversity, I might rant a bit about the cliches that surround that topic. One cool thing that has happened on this podcast in recent weeks is good publicity, most notably a recommendation in the New York Times travel section. So welcome, New York Times listeners. It was great to see a traffic bump the day that article came out. I realize that the New York Times has an international readership and isn't specific to people in New York, but I've said before on this podcast that of all the cities and all the parts of the world I've been to, New York is among my favorites and probably always will be. 
A couple of warnings. If you just started listening to this podcast because of the New York Times article, first, by its very name, Deviate isn't just about travel. It's about topics and people that fascinate me. Now, half the time, maybe more, this means I talk about travel and travel-adjacent topics, but there are times when I talk about things like leadership or mortality or sports or movies or paleontology or agriculture. So if you're only here for the travel stuff, it won't hurt my feelings if you skip the non-travel stuff. My other warning for New York Times listeners is that when I'm not traveling, I'm not based in New York or any other cosmopolitan world city for that matter. I'm based in rural Kansas, which isn't a bad place to wait out a pandemic right now. But people in New York have always been kind of weird to me about Kansas. At one level, writing for New York publishers while being based in Kansas gives me a degree of what some people have called authenticity, as if I'm living like Cormac McCarthy out here, and maybe compared to your average New Yorker I am. But the other big stereotype people bring to Kansas, and I mean even salty travelers from places like New York, is that Kansas is some kind of backwater filled with scary conservative people. I mean, if you want to think about places purely in terms of stereotypes, Thailand, for example, has had a long-time reputation as a place where prostitution is normalized, and Colombia is a place that's long been associated with cocaine production. But somehow I doubt travelers go to Thailand and immediately start asking people what they think about prostitutes, just like I doubt they go around asking locals about their views on cocaine after one day in Colombia, or at least it feels like a really weird topic to bring up. Yet the moment I mention I'm based in Kansas to someone from a place like New York, and invariably the first thing I'll ask, and I mean literally the first thing if it's not some joke about Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, is what it's like for me to live next to all the ultra-conservative Republican people they imagine live everywhere in Kansas. Well, that's fair enough. I don't think Kansas has tilted toward a Democrat in a presidential election since FDR back in 1936. But really, that's the only association you have? You know, just like all those hookers in Thailand and those mountains of coke in Colombia? It's actually gotten worse since Donald Trump was elected president, and that's no surprise since Trump is such a weird and bombastic guy. But I'm perplexed when people literally tell me I would never go to a place like Kansas because I don't want to be around that many Trump voters. Guys, I actually looked it up, and not only did more humans vote for Trump in the state of New York than the state of Kansas, there were as many votes cast for Trump on Long Island alone as there were in the entire state of Kansas. If you add in votes for Trump in the five boroughs of New York City, you have almost twice as many people who voted for Donald Trump in the greater New York metro area as voted for Trump in the entire state of Kansas. Now, of course, when I bring this up, people will say, yeah, but there's more people in New York than Kansas, and like 90% of the people in Kansas voted for Trump. To which I say, actually, 56% of the people in Kansas voted for Trump, and you didn't say you were worried about going to a Walmart in Kansas and mingling with the 56% of the people there who'd voted for Trump. You said you didn't want to go to a place with so many Trump voters, and there are literally twice as many Trump voters in New York City and Long Island as there are in Kansas. So why is that the first thing you talk about when you want to talk about Kansas? Actually, I don't mean to go off on a political tangent here. I don't care much for politics, and I don't even talk much about politics. And that's part of my point. I'm sure I talk to Trump voters all the time here in Kansas, but guess what? I don't talk about politics when I talk to them. I had a friend, a good friend, who visited me in Kansas once from the East Coast, and after a couple days she asked me, do people here think they're more American than those of us who live on the East Coast? It was such a weirdly specific question, so I said, wow, that's strange. I'm sorry, did somebody here tell you that? 
Well, no, nobody in Kansas actually said that to her, and nobody randomly initiated any political conversations when they found out where she was from. But for some reason, she thought people in the middle of the country considered themselves to be more American than people who live on the coast. Now, I've been based in or out of Kansas off and on my whole life, and I've literally never heard a Kansas person say that they're more American than Americans who live in other parts of the country. Now, sorry if this sounds like a rant in and of itself, but it's actually a travel lesson of sorts, since the way some people react to the idea of Kansas reminds me that rigid expectations are a bad idea wherever you go in the world. If you go to Thailand looking for evidence of prostitution, you'll probably end up with an experience of Thailand that involves evidence of prostitution. If you go to Colombia with the idea that there's cocaine everywhere, you'll probably find evidence of cocaine, just like you'll find plenty of Trump-crazed Republicans if that's what you're looking for in Kansas. But seriously, life is a lot more complicated and way more interesting wherever you happen to go. So please allow yourself to let go of your expectations and stereotypes and just experience the place for what it is, surprises and stereotypes included. All right, this in mind, I should probably address travel in general right now, since those of us who love travel are wondering what travel will look like once we aren't literally in quarantine. I'd actually really been looking forward to taking a train trip across Italy and Switzerland with my nephew starting about a month from now, and it stings to have to miss out on that. I'm sure we can do a version of that trip down the line. It's just hard to know exactly when and exactly how it will happen and what it'll look like. Actually, a lot of people who are talking about travel right now are talking about travel that might not involve flying. Some people have predicted a boom in domestic travel going by RV or van, and that makes sense given that you're a lot more self-contained when you travel that way. That's actually something I talked about back in episode 79 of this season when I recalled my first ever vagabonding trip by van across North America back in 1994. Some of the experiences I had on that trip, and I'm thinking about things like spring break and Mardi Gras, might not be wise in the near future, but a lot of the more isolated and wilderness-oriented experiences feel like they'd be a great way to travel once quarantine restrictions are lifted. Of course, in the years since that first vagabonding trip, my travels have gotten more and more international. So one thing I want to explore in this podcast season is how international travel will change once it becomes possible again. I think I can say without being too self-congratulatory that vagabonding-style travel might set the tone for how we travel in the near future, in part because vagabonding has always been about slowing down and listening and seeing travel as something that goes beyond a consumer experience, and really also because vagabonding travel compels you to unplug and be unreachable and be present in a way that's not even possible at home. I think there's a lot of ethical as well as logistical issues to consider once world travel becomes possible again. It's funny, travel has been seen as a commercial act for so long that we've gotten used to seeing destinations described as hotspots. So it was kind of jarring when people started using that same language, that is hotspots, to describe places that have high concentrations of COVID-19. I started vagabonding in earnest back in the 1990s when we kind of had this assumption that growth in all economic endeavors was inevitable and eternal, when in fact, even before the pandemic rolled around, that kind of thinking was probably naive and a tad unrealistic. It feels like a lot of established voices in the travel industry have never had a frame of reference that includes an understanding of life before we all believed in eternal growth. And I think the experience of travel in societies that aren't as wealthy as ours can literally help you better understand how people have always adapted and thrived on their own terms in conditions that don't have the same assumptions about convenience and consumer-centered comfort as we do. 
Under some industry definitions, travel is synonymous with vacations, and that's fine, but somehow I don't think vacationers are going to create the new model for how post-pandemic travel works. One of the big travel headlines in recent years was overcrowding in places like Venice and Bali, and I doubt it will be the desire to go to hot spots or top 10 list destinations that will drive the next wave of travel. It will simply be the desire to go and to figure things out as the journey plays out. Now, all this said, it's not like any of us will be able to travel entirely outside of the travel industry footprint. And for the most part, it feels like travelers in the travel industry have a ton of common interests. But I do think it's good to keep in mind that travel is not synonymous with the consumer rituals of the travel industry. You know, one of the episodes I have coming up this season will be an interview with Pamela Fiore, who edited a travel magazine called Holiday, which isn't around anymore, though it was one of the best magazines out there and was an influence of the rise of other special interest magazines such as Sports Illustrated in the 1950s. Holiday published a lot of literary writing by people like Joan Didion and Jack Kerouac and Graham Greene, but it wasn't created for the purpose of showcasing great writing. Holiday magazine was created because right after World War II, its creators saw travel as a growth market and the magazine as a way to sell advertising to travel industry and other upwardly mobile lifestyle brands. In short, the ads came first and the great content followed. And even newspaper travel sections, which are now mostly extinct, followed that same model. This includes the New York Times, which famously doesn't allow writers to go on sponsored trips, not because it focuses on the non-commercial side of travel, but precisely because it mostly covers travel industry experiences and it's trying to remain objective, not in terms of how travel experiences play out, but in terms of how consumer travel experiences play out. My own travel writing career started more than 20 years ago in Salon.com, back before it was a clickbait factory. And Salon travel in the late 1990s was a moment when every day you could read travel stories that had nothing whatsoever to do with the travel industry. And in this way, I think I got spoiled early on as a travel writer in a way that has perhaps turned me into a mediocre consumer travel writer. I remember doing a service article for National Geographic Adventure back in the day where the editor literally told me it's more important to recommend something specific, like where to get a cappuccino in Kathmandu, than to give big picture philosophical and life relevant travel advice because, and he literally said this, most readers won't actually travel, but they do want a sense of certainty about the consumer choices of travel while presumably they're reading National Geographic Adventure at home on the toilet. Later, an editor at Outside, a magazine I always have and still do love, told me they wanted to focus more on celebrity profiles, not because celebrities have anything particularly useful to say about travel in the outdoors, but because that's what sells magazines. I mean, one advantage of podcasts like this one is that you can communicate directly to whatever audience finds you interesting and useful without some kind of gatekeeper watering down what you say for reasons that have nothing to do with how travel actually works. I think consumer information about travel will always be an important part of what travel writing is, but I think the coronavirus pandemic might be a pretext to reinvent travel writing in such a way that it emphasizes interactions over transactions and actually reports on the nuances of a complicated world rather than just framing vacation experiences. One of the great periods in modern travel writing history came between the World Wars in the first half of the 20th century and was celebrated by the cultural historian Paul Fussell in his classic 1980 book Abroad. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Fussell was writing about travel books by people like Graham Greene and Eva Lenoir and D.H. Lawrence, and guess what? These writers were traveling in the decade after the Spanish influenza pandemic killed millions of people worldwide. 
So it feels like the coming decade might suffer in terms of industry-slanted travel writing, but hopefully it will thrive when it comes to literary travel writing, ideally from people from all kinds of backgrounds and perspectives who are willing to be curious and honest and repertorial as they venture out into the world. For the moment, of course, we can only dream of travel as we're stuck at home in quarantine, but this doesn't mean we can't bring the attitude of travel into the lives we're leading at home. I talk about this a lot more next week in the Season 3 debut episode, but it feels like this period is a great time to unplug and reset and be less competitive and less worried about trivial things that other people are doing. This is a chance to take an interest in everything and everybody around you right now and be grateful for what you have. I mean, there's a lot of actual vagabonding skills that are really useful right now, from patience in the face of uncertainty to how to wash a small rotation of clothes in the sink if you don't have access to a laundromat. And it's funny, for more than a month now, we've been treating toilet paper like it's some kind of essential and rare commodity, when if you travel most anywhere outside of the industrialized world in places like India, people don't even use toilet paper and in fact think it's kind of gross, which is something I talked about with Ari Shafir back in episode 103. If you got shit on your face, would you wipe it off with paper or no, would you wipe it off with you water? you get some water. Yeah. And so, uh, and of course, that creates another problem, which is there's a reason why Indian people don't eat with their left hand, and I'm left-handed. <laughs> and so when I'm eating with my left hand in India, I'm like the grossest person on the street by their standards because um, they think that that's my ass-wiping hand. Yeah. Um, Dude, I did it on a hike in Griffith Park two weeks ago, and I had the shit just so bad. And I told my friends, like, Jim, I I'm going to go, man. I'm going to go. It's yeah. fine. I just crouched, and he's like, we don't have any Paper. I'm like, you have a full bottle of water. Give it to me. And then okay, I use yeah, that. And he yeah. was like, are you kidding me? I'm like, yeah. it's fine. I think one travel ritual that could be really interesting and even useful right now is keeping a journal, since I think journals help you pay attention to and make sense of extraordinary situations. Lavinia Spaulding and I talked about this in the context of travel journals back in episode 71, but it feels like journaling can also be a way of making sense of what is happening at home right now. You know, the other day I was reading an excerpt from the book My Struggle by the Norwegian author Carl Ove Knausgaard, and he wrote, quote, When I was 16, I thought life was without end. But what I didn't know was that every step I took was defining me, and the life I was living at that particular time, boundlessly arbitrary as it seemed, was in fact my life. That one day I would look back on my life, and this would be what I looked back on. What I had seen as insignificant, as weightless as air, a series of events dissolving in exactly the same way as darkness dissolved in the mornings would, twenty years on, seem laden with destiny and fate. Well, I think that the lives we're living right now are laden with destiny and fate. This was probably true even before the pandemic, but I think that keeping a journal through this specific moment in history can remind you that what you're living through right now is in fact your life, if that makes sense. In general, unplugging and getting into old pre-electronic habits like reading books feels like a great way to engage with life right now. And at a time when the news feeds of the virtual world are so full of alarming and contradictory information, it's good to unplug and stay grounded and go for walks if you can and sit in the sun and read and reread books. I've been reading from the Stoic philosopher Seneca, and to paraphrase him paraphrasing Epicurus, I love the line about how if you want to be rich, don't add to your store of money but subtract from your desires. If you want to be honorable, don't add to your honors but subtract from your desires. If you want to have pleasure forever, do not add to your pleasures but subtract from your desires. 
It feels like subtracting from your desires is a good strategy at this point in human history, not just for your own health, but for the health of your greater community. In addition to Seneca, I have a big stack of books I'm hoping to get to, Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir, Eddie Harris's Africa travel book Native Stranger, Nicholas Bouvier's travel book The Way of the World, Paul Theroux's travel book The Last Train to Zona Verde, which I started years ago and never quite finished, and Rebecca Solnit's A Field Guide to Getting Lost. I have a whole stack of books here I hope to get to as time widens a bit during quarantine. People have also been emailing me to ask me for my book recommendations. I've been suggesting books I've loved since my 20s, books like Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and John Steinbeck's Cannery Row and Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son. I've been recommending books I've read more recently, like Sherman Alexie's Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian and William Finnegan's Surfing Memoir Barbarian Days, and Viva by Patricia Engel, who was my student in Paris 17 years ago, though I can hardly take credit for what she's written. I've also recommended books from authors who've appeared on this podcast recently. I've recommended On the Plane of Snakes by Paul Theroux and Columbine by Dave Cullen and Why Dinosaurs Matter by Kenneth Lacovara. Speaking of season two, I think the most listened to episode was Ari Shafir and me talking about psychedelics back in the debut episode, and that's no surprise since Ari had the most listened to episodes in season one as well. The most listened to travel episode in season two was called Van Life Before Hashtag Van Life, which was probably one of the more personal episodes I've ever done since it's about the very first vagabonding trip I ever took back when I was 23 years old, which changed my life in ways I'm still grateful for. Seriously, I love that episode because it gave me a chance to reflect on an experience from more than 25 years ago that still means a lot to me. Another one of my favorite episodes from this season doesn't fall into travel or really into any single tidy category. It's called The Power of Small Choices Across Decades, and it's about Sergeant John Monk, who was 102 years old when I talked to him. You know, back in World War II, he couldn't get on a public bus in Virginia, even in his U.S. Army uniform, because he was black in the Jim Crow South, and the way he responded to that humiliation is so extraordinary and subtle that it lasted more than 75 years. You know, for all the talk of how to optimize podcast listens and game algorithms to attract an audience, there's nothing strategic or clickbaity about recounting John Monk's life. It's just a great American story, and to properly understand it, you have to hear his voice, so I encourage you to give it a listen. Another topic I talked about quite a bit this season was movies. You know, one of my favorite podcasts from week to week is the Rewatchables podcast by the Ringer Network, and I'm sure this has been an influence on my own Deviate episodes about movies. I think I did seven different movie-themed episodes in season two, including an exploration of the 1999 Leonardo DiCaprio travel movie The Beach, and a roundup of the best travel movies from the past quarter century. I actually stole some of The Ringer's regular guests from my own podcast, including the sports writer Michael Weinreb, who talked with me about the terrific 1995 Noah Baumbach movie Kicking and Screaming, and Wesley Morris, who talked with me about Spike Lee's iconic 1989 movie Do the Right Thing. You know, the Do the Right Thing episode is one of the least listened to episodes this season, which baffles me, not just because I think that movie is still important, but because I think Wesley Morris is one of the best film critics out there, and if you listen to my interview with him in season one, you know that I literally have a fanish relationship to the work he does. At the beginning of season two, I went on social media and asked people for guest suggestions, and I got some great ones. But one of the suggestions that confused me was what appeared to be a few white people on social media asking that I interview people of color. 
Not a specific person who happened to be a person of color, but just people of color in general, which perplexed me since in season one, I talked to Sophronia Scott about Generation X and Candace Taylor about domestic travel and Latoya Morgan about screenwriting. I talked to James Espinoza and Bear Manuel about police work and Ernest White II about travel and friendship, so I wasn't sure what kind of people of color these white people on social media were looking for, and I suspect that they didn't either. I mean, it's pretty clear that these people didn't listen much to season one of my podcast, but it feels like we've come to this weird point in social history where for a certain class of white listener, including people of color in conversations on podcasts, doesn't really count unless you explicitly advertise the fact that these people are people of color. I mean, Tommy Pico was on my live special in episode 24, but it would have been weird to point out that he's Native American since that's not really what he talked about in episode 24. Eddie Harris was a big part of my Anthony Bourdain eulogy back in episode 34, not because he brought perspective as a black travel writer, but because he spoke as an iconic literary author who was publishing travel books a good decade before Bourdain did. If Eddie didn't feel compelled to advertise his race, I'm not sure why I should have. When I did my series on COVID-19, I brought in Dr. J.P. Santiago, not because he's Filipino-American, but because he's incredibly knowledgeable, not just about science and medicine in the pandemic age, but also about the aviation industry. So when I talk to Wesley Morris about movies, I'm just happy to be talking to Wesley Morris about movies, regardless of what race Wesley Morris is. I think our Do the Right Thing episode was a really fascinating one, and I encourage you to check it out if you haven't done so already. In the Do the Right Thing episode, Wesley actually asked me about the first time I watched the movie and what the racial makeup of my Kansas high school was when I was a teenager. I told him I thought it was maybe 65% white and about 35% non-white, and the more I thought about this in the weeks afterwards, the more I realized it might be interesting to get some old Wichita North High School friends together and talk about the idea of racial diversity and racial difference. I actually did this and recorded an episode of Deviate that will debut later this season. I was the only white guy in a group of five people I went to high school with back in the day, and one of the first things they confirmed for me was that, no, our school was not 65% white and 35% non-white. It was more like 50% white and 50% non-white. In talking to these old high school friends, I realized that the way we talk about racial diversity, especially on social media, even when we mean well, can be so different from the way we actually experience it in life. Being around people from different backgrounds is kind of awesome, especially when you're growing up. Yet I'm confused by how some people, and I'm thinking specifically about some upper-class white people, have come to see the experience of diversity not as something you experience in an immersive way, but as something you mostly talk about in a performative way, something that, for lack of a better word, you use to accessorize your life. I remember very early in my days of vagabonding around Asia, I was traveling in Thailand and I spent some time with a well-to-do woman from Oregon. At one point, she started complaining about how the private school in Portland where her sister's kids went to school was doing a bad job of recruiting minority students. I actually knew Portland a little bit, so I said, well, why doesn't she send her kids to Jefferson or Grant? There's lots of minority kids that go to those schools, at least by Oregon standards. And she just looked at me like I was stupid. Jefferson and Grant, she said, are, quote, not good schools. Guys, the whole notion of a, quote, not good school is a very old euphemism that means it's a school with too many non-white students. I think what this woman wanted was an academically elite school that did a better job of recruiting a token number of high-achieving minority students. 
Which is noble enough, I guess, since it's good to give people access to elite schools, but why slag on Jefferson and Grant? Why not send your kids there and use your relative wealth to support those institutions? It feels like for a high percentage of well-meaning upper-class white people in America, diversity isn't about investing in your actual extended community. It's a boutique exercise that it feels like brings a nominal number of non-white people into their lives so they can talk about spending time with those non-white people. I remember years ago, even earlier than my travels in Thailand, when I was living in Korea, I worked with a guy from Massachusetts who talked in a faintly braggy manner about how back in the day he'd gone out of his way to befriend every single black person who went to his high school. I told him that sounded kind of arbitrary and exhausting, and he was literally offended when I said this. Somewhere I'm sure he still thinks I'm a horrible person. The thing is, for this suburban Massachusetts guy, befriending every single black person in his high school meant reaching out to exactly four people. That's no joke. And while those four people may have appreciated the effort that he made, it's a different task than going to high school as I did with maybe two or three hundred black people. I'm not sure exactly. What I do know is that if you go to a non-elite public school with a more meaningful, diverse student population, you befriend people because you like them, not because it allows you to showcase your moral virtue. Experiencing meaningful diversity means that there's some black people you don't hang out with because they're assholes, just like you don't hang out with teenage assholes who happen to be white or Asian or Latino. Sorry for that tangent, but it's weird to hear some white people talking about racial diversity like it's a lifestyle accessory rather than something you invest in. And it feels like the more diversity you actually experience in life, the less qualified you feel to shame other white people with self-congratulatory bromides about what diversity is. I'd reckon my episode where I talked to my old high school classmates about the idea of diversity is a way of unpacking all of this. That episode will probably drop sometime this summer. Season 3 will also include a lot of travel episodes that I've already recorded, a lot of interviews with terrific authors like Kate Harris talking about Central Asia, or Doug Bach-Clark talking about Indonesia, or Maggie Downs talking about her year-long trip around the world. I talked to Ed Buren, who wrote his own vagabonding book back in the 1970s, and I talked to Will Hunt about how underground exploration is the perennial frontier of adventure travel. I talk about old travel experiences I've had, like jumping freight trains across the Pacific Northwest or sleeping in the greatest hostel in the world in Cairo. I talk about things like mentorship and loss and grief and the role nostalgia plays in your life and changing ways as you grow older. I hope to cover a lot of cool topics in Season 3 of DV8, so I hope you can continue to tune in. As I wind things down here, I'll admit that I really do miss travel, but I'm making do out here. As you may know from recent episodes, I'm actually spending a lot of time with my parents, who are also my next-door neighbors here in Kansas. I actually have a rich and international social life in the course of a normal year, but it's kind of charming to be trapped here in quarantine with my parents, of all people, who, because of their age, have to be a lot more isolated than your average person, which means for reasons of safety, I'm a lot more isolated than your average person. This has given me a pretext to hang out with my parents in ways that are actually enjoyable and unique for an adult guy and his adult parents. The other day I suggested we have a socially distanced dinner party where we invited my sister's family over. They live just a couple miles away from us here in north central Kansas. And we all ate dinner together outside, only they brought their own food and their own dishes and their own table and they ate 10 feet away from us. At one point, my sister's family thought our bunt cake looked pretty delicious, so we figured it would be inside the rules of the party to toss it 10 feet over to their table, which had a lower collective coronavirus risk. I'm not used 
to um, to throwing bunt cake. Yeah, Are you ready? Oh, yeah, well, why don't you just slip it over on the table? Oh! That was pretty good. Well, why don't you let tr do that for Steve? Nobody too? took my picture, like the, the symbolic <laughs> transference of the bunt cake. Feels like tossing bunt cake should become a standard ritual every time we throw a socially distanced dinner party here, since traditions are always good. All right, I know that early in this episode, I implied that I'm willing to send a postcard from my quarantine here in Kansas to any listener in the U.S. who writes emails to tell me about what they enjoyed about Season 2 and what they would like to hear in Season 3. Just send me your feedback at deviateatrolfpots.com and let me know your thoughts and your insights and your mailing address. I'm not sure about non-USA addresses because I'm not going to the post office right now, but if you have feedback and you're not based in the U.S., just let me know and I'll figure something out. I think that's it, guys. I had planned on sharing some found audio from some of the podcasts I've been on here in quarantine, as well as some of the Zoom lectures I've given to students in various parts of the world over the course of the past six weeks. But I feel like I've been talking for a pretty long time here, so maybe I'll save all of that for some other episode. I will say that I've included an Easter egg for everyone on the other side of my outro. Specifically, it's three songs from my nephew Cedar Van Tassel's album Lumber. The song Lumber, which I've included in the Easter egg, is the source of the Deviate theme and transition music you hear here each week. I've also included a song called USD 306 and another song called Turkey Vulture Sky. I've linked to Cedar's entire 10-song album through my show notes at rolfpotscom deviate. You can actually download it for free there, but I encourage you to kick him a couple dollars if you like it, since college is on hold for him right now, and I'm sure he could use the money. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Again, you're listening to music by Cedar Van Tassel. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of Deviate, and I hope you tune in for the third season of Deviate with Rolf Potts, which starts one week from today. Be safe, everyone. 